Uh, Daniel, within the Western context of, of the Dhamma, because the 10-day retreat or the seven-day retreat mentality has so deeply sunk into that this is, in fact, the only way uh, to practice and that anything less like a weekend or an all-day or something online is merely a week substitution for this 10-day retreat. That's generally the, uh, the mentality that has uh, grown up to where um, the, the full Dhamma, for instance, can't be said in 10 days and no one even tries. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, uh, in the old days, we would give right uh, effort into doing that, knowing that in no possible way in 10 days can we give the full extent of the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that not only that, but if even if you could give it in 10 days with the idea, perhaps, that all, oh, if they only do this one retreat, they'll still gain in this retreat all the tools they need to go on and on and on into the future. Generally, that's way too much to expect from the student mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be able to gather up all the details <laughs> he needs. And that, in fact, what I see is often that things need to be repeated for a student mm -hmm. over, over and over again, uh, uh, perhaps in a way of uh, first explaining it in purely Dhamma terms, but then later when the student is fully stepping right in it, mm -hmm. to then start pointing it out again. Mm -hmm. And then later he'll step in it again. Yeah and, yeah, and after four or five times over the course of maybe a year or so, the student begins to get it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and begins to change his whole way of looking at things. So this is an actual process that I've had, uh, let us say, been able to take great joy mm -hmm. in watching students go through that process of, of awakening from the ordinary mentality into the super mundane. Mm -hmm. And every one of them just are still cackling with laughter over it. It's just yeah. such a liberating possibility. And so we, if we stay with the retreat-only model, that means then that something is special and magical about the doing the meditation on the floor someplace. Yeah doing long hours in a sitting posture that's often painful yeah. and a whole lot of things that are um, let us say external and not a part of what actually is to be practiced yeah. that we look at it in the sense of posture uh, which does have a component to it but the real issue is the ability to come out of one's suffering mm -hmm. And that causing more suffering doesn't seem like the very best method of coming out of suffering. Yep, yep. And yet the Westerners, they see these Asians can squat for long periods of time. I ought to be able to do it too, even if it kills me. <laughs> and a whole bunch of men, most of them have been monks, who can't even squat on the floor anymore because their legs have given out. I even know one monk who's a Nachan who had been a monk for 10 years, and he carries around a doctor's certificate. 
about how bad his knees are. But he still doesn't want to be around the other monks because he doesn't want to come show his English language paper to all of these Thai monks one at a time. And he's mm-hmm. too embarrassed then to sit in the chair. Mm. And so he wants to, he want, doesn't want to be anywhere near other monks because okay. of that. Okay. Um, and that's all right because there are secluded places for, uh, for monks. Um, but this is, it's common enough that it needs to be investigated mm-hmm. because this is not a torture chamber, that that's not what Anapanasati was about. In fact, he came up with this practice of Anapanasati after the Buddha came out of this torture chamber. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, for some reason, the Westerners think that, oh, well, let's jump back in it. we got to go do it like the Buddha did or something. Yeah. Uh, rather than following then the Buddha's uh, method and orders, we wind up doing what the Buddha did. Yeah. When he figured out that, no, that's not the way to do it. There's a better way of doing it. And so um, this is actually then built right into the quality of these 10-day retreats mm-hmm. because most people, in fact, don't enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are expected for this to be a drudgery. Yeah. Um, it's gotten that kind of reputation, but then somehow or another, it's quote, quote, good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if spending 10 days in memory is not actually practicing, honing in on and developing the skills and the habits of misery, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we're literally teaching students to be miserable yeah. and have them practice it somehow in the name of uh, the other side. If mm. you, I guess that it has to do with uh, the idea of paying uh, the fee, like working all week, and then at the end of the week you get your reward. Yeah. Sort of like you have to put in the work in order to get the benefit. Yeah. Uh, but there's a much more important way to look at it, and that is, is that we develop the skills that we practice. So if you practice the skill of joy and keep practicing the skill of joy, then guess what skill you develop mm-hmm. is joy. Yeah. That, that, that just makes so clear a sense, and yet so many Westerners don't understand that. Uh, because they have the idea that you've got to put in a lot of work and a lot of effort based upon a mentality that actually is a lot more Western in its frame of reference than Asian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That that often, uh, especially if you have young men, but the, uh, the Asians are actually quite playful. Mm-hmm. And so their playfulness is sort of not needed to be taught because it's an ingredient that's already self-evident to where yeah. the Westerners, we need to relearn playfulness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, to, the way to learn that is with uh, our, our practice. So... Now we're beginning to change the frame of reference from these retreats only into a longer uh, term, but something that has 
um, let us say, direction and connection built into it. Mm -hmm. So that uh, the change uh, in focus of the meditations change. In fact, I even would would go so far as to throw out the word meditation itself mm -hmm. and go more for uh, more traditional actual Buddhist kinds of words like bhavana or development, skill development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the closest way word that we have to that in English would be the word practice. Because mm -hmm. that, that's exactly what we're doing. What are we practicing? To clean the mind. What yeah. are we practicing? Joy. What yeah. are we practicing? One's right effort. Yeah. What are we practicing? Take a deep breath. Yeah. Okay, all of these aspects of Anapanasati. What are we practicing? Um, uh, the attitude of success. Mm -hmm. The attitude of a winner. The attitude that no matter how the, uh, difficult it is to clean the mind, I can clean it out and come back to this present moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the kind of practice or the kind of skill development that's needed, not for just sitting on the floor. We, in fact, need to go into seclusion so that we don't have to deal with the regular world. But then after we begin to develop that skill while we're sitting in seclusion, we need to bring that out and start practicing it uh, many times throughout the day. Yeah. And this is the way that we, we begin to practice. Like, here's an example is, is that if you only did a 10 day course once a year for 10 days, what are you doing with the rest of that time? Yeah. Well, okay. The answer is, well, I meditate once an hour every day. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, a full hour every day. Great. That means that you're in hindrance now only 23 hours a day. <laughs> Congratulations. Exactly. Which one of them are, is going to win? <laughs> 10 days out of a year or, yeah. or one hour out of a day I don't think so I think we need to change our method and style of practice so that the students whatever he's doing throughout the day whether he's going to work or play or whatever we're doing is to start practicing Anapanasati and the Satipatthana whenever we remember to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we're practicing that way, then it becomes more and more of our life. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, the more we practice it throughout the day, the more full of strong intention that we have. That's how we develop this strong uh, intention, uh, or as Goenka calls it, strong determination. Mm -hmm. But the Buddha has a different slant on it because of the way that it looks like he's using the word eager, are enthusiastic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because strongly determined is almost like um, I, I, I am bound and determined to get myself out of uh, the hole that I'm in right now mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the enthusiasm is look I got myself out of that hole yeah yeah okay so this is kind of the way that we're looking for the development of the attitude, first on a very short level, while we're actually practicing freeing the mind of hindrances. Mm -hmm. But then over time, we continue to keep practicing this so that we develop uh, the attitude of a lion. The mm -hmm. Buddha was a lion. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. strong. And that as Ananda uh, uh, in a sutta was explaining to the Brahmin um, that there is no difference between the Buddha or any of those who were part of his legacy after he died, except for only one item. And that one item was is that the Buddha was able to strike this fire by himself. He was mm-hmm. the one who figured, or actually he didn't figure out the path, he discovered the path, just like nobody's ever uh, uh, invented fire, but mm-hmm. we discovered fire and discovered mm-hmm. how to use it, okay? So that's the main difference. After that, that fire or that spark is given off one by one from one teacher to his student that you see sometimes in ceremonies of uh, where people have all got candles and one person lives and then they all become come lit. This is a much slower process, but it's the same thing that the students begin to get uh, enthusiastic for the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. And that this is exactly what we want to encourage. That that very enthusiasm is what carries the mind out of this ordinary poor me attitude into the attitude of a noble. Mm-hmm. That enthusiasm. And then after the enthusiasm comes the absolute delight mm-hmm. when you know for sure that you could do this. Mm-hmm. That's the final eradication of all the doubt. And this state is, by the way, the one that's known as step or the, the seventh knowledge that is the full fruit of Sotapan. Mm-hmm. It starts with this, determ- well, actually, it doesn't start with the determination, but along the path someplace, this determination is picked up that then turns into enthusiasm and, do, and, and winds up as the fruit in the state of being delighted with the Dhamma, the, the Dhamma is everywhere. That's the only thing that we can see is the Dhamma, which means that the only thing we ever talk about is the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, this is actually the natural state for the teacher mm-hmm. is because he just can't shut up about the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only thing that he's got on his mind. Uh, and that... Uh, Uh, This is good because as he continues to talk, he will refine and get deeper and more clear about what he's doing and how he's teaching. And that this is exactly what the old masters want to have happen. This is part of the teacher training is the enthusiasm that, that the student gains by picking up the enthusiasm from his teacher. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, I, I would say I'm on the right path because a while ago my girlfriend uh, mentioned that the only thing you're talking about anymore is Buddhism. Like everything is Buddhism to you. Everything is related to uh, to Buddhism, to mindfulness. So then mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely so. <laughs> okay, so but uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask. Um, I have noticed. A reluctance in the West um, towards religion and towards, uh, you know, so, so what I'm struggling with a bit is this new group that I'm talking about, that I'm now forming and, and going to, uh, to be providing guided meditations for, they specifically do not want 
any bells or any bowing or any like anything related to religion, anything that looks like it could be somehow related to, you know, the religion of Buddhism, they don't want that. So they do want the Dhamma. Actually, they do want to be practicing it somehow, but it, it cannot be linked with, with anything that has to do with religion. And this, I think, is an, quite an interesting uh, topic or exploration. Like, do you think this is, this is possible? Can we um, repackage the Dhamma? I mean, it, it must be possible somehow, you know, to, to be able to transfer it, to be able to provide it in a way that makes sense to them, just as the Buddha also tailored his teachings always to the people listening. I, I agree. I think that um, there will be a need for, uh, let us call it a two-tiered system. Mm-hmm. And that two-tiered would be, the top tier would be those Westerners who, let us hope, have the noble Dhamma, but are also interested in a scholarly way yeah. so that we keep going with with the teachings of the Buddha to kind of help keep it pure yeah. while at the, the much broader level that we want to give the teachers complete flexibility in teaching the Dhamma to the point that they don't really have to even mention the, the name of the Buddha anymore that mm-hmm. since words like mindfulness have already fallen into the culture, we yeah. might as well use that kind of word, even though I generally choke on it when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> because I tend to use the word sati. But uh-huh. that's the background that I have, that I'm much more poly-oriented and sort of like uh, the first step out of Asia, because Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was entrenched in and 100% Asian. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of like one of the uh, an example of the first step out of that. Yeah. And as I'm coming out of it and bringing it to the West, one of the qualifications that I have to keep track of is uh, does what I see and speak in English fit the suttas? Can I mm-hmm. reference and point out and pull back? Because mm-hmm. if I can do that, then that's sort of like the guarantee for any students or that are becoming teachers. Mm-hmm. They can reference me. They can call. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. They want to know. Because mm-hmm. the students uh, who are becoming teachers, they want to get it straight. Where did you get that? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I was like that with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, even in those days. In fact, I was blown away by his uh, poly scholarship. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, so appreciative. But over the time, uh, especially by the time that he had died in 1993, I came to the conclusion that, okay, uh, what he taught came out of the suttas. Now that he's gone, let me go back into the suttas or go into the suttas myself because I've got to verify everything that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And except for a few remnants, uh, I, I found them. Mm-hmm. Everything he said that puts it together as a package, a working package. So now we have sutra references for all of that stuff. Um, and that, uh, so 
we're really looking at it from the kind of the position of the truth, but that doesn't mean that we're going to only allow Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's version of it. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I think that Zen and many other groups, uh, those who are, uh, the way that I would say it would be that enthusiasm, that's the ingredient mm-hmm. that we're looking for. Those mm-hmm. that are so much into the Dhamma, even though we want to actually, as a group, kind of westernifies it, yeah. because it doesn't really need the name of the Buddha in it. Yeah. Uh, and we don't need all of the Pali language, but we do want to make sure that basically this is the way that I look at it. Number one, what we say fits with physical real science that everyone more or less understands. Yeah. Okay, some of us more than others. More, some of us uh, have some background to our uh, understanding of gravity mm-hmm. and some mathematics and that kind of stuff. But basically, everybody understands the physical laws of nature, including yeah. the law that I has just mentioned a while ago. If we practice being miserable, we'll wind up being experts at misery. If yeah. we practice being happy, we'll wind up being happy. That's actually uh, visible and self-evident as part of our reality. The next point would be that what I have to say also fits directly with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the Buddha, and that I can, upon anyone's request, give them deeper uh, background. And in fact, on, uh, on Skype, quite often a student will ask me a question, and he'll get a whole raft of <laughs> Sutta and Pali mixed I together. can imagine. <laughs> uh, so, um, it, it all fits together like that. And then the last item on the list is when the student begins to practice for himself and sees deeply for himself, yes, this is in fact the way to go. Now we've got all of the stuff together. We've got all of the lineage from the Buddha and Dikha Buddha Dasa down to myself, down into your practice, as well as it fits with reality, mm-hmm. that there's no magic in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that's really going to get that enthusiasm going. That's the yeah. fire. Yeah. When we recognize this stuff works, it's yeah. real. And that it gives good results. And then the next kind of thought is, is that this is too good to keep quiet. Yeah. I want to share this stuff. I want it to get out. Okay. And so that's, in fact, exactly why I'm on the Internet. That and the fact that Achan Po has given me that exact same word that he wants me out here also. And mm-hmm. so that's actually a part of the end of the lineage is when when someone on the internet is teaching this says okay i can point right back to damarato why don't you get in touch with him yeah. he points right back to bhikkhu uh Achan po who points right back to bhikkhu buddha dasa we've got that lineage we've got that line in in there and that uh, uh all along the, the way there is that element of truth that stays uh, as part of that lineage. And so um, that, that quality of lineage has, its, has a value, but most Westerners won't have it. And so we have to look at, in fact, this idea of lineage 
has the quality of certification. Yeah. And it also has the quality of an angle. Yeah. Of what's your angle? All right. Yeah. If the teachers have the organization, they can point to that as kind of a certification. I'm not so keen on the word certification because that gives the connotation of bought and paid for certificates. Yeah, exactly. Like this is something that I've been avoiding because I've looked into, okay, how can I qualify myself to be a good teacher? And then you yes, get into all exactly. kinds of these programs where you pay, you pay like $5,000, $6,000 to then get the certificate and okay, whoop to do now you can teach eight weeks of mindfulness in this specific system and that's it. So I've been doing it a bit of a different way. I, for that money, I can follow a, a psychology uh, course, a psychology master's degree here in Belgium. I'm very mm -hmm. fortunate that I live in a place where education is so cheap. So that's the way I'm, I'm doing it now. That's what I'm pursuing right now. But uh, like as a side study, but just, you know, OK, let's pay for this certification. And, and then you have what you have a piece of paper and uh -huh. that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's exactly right. And not only that, but if you're paying for that certification and paying some high, um, let us say, regarded teacher, these these large amounts of money, then basically he is bestowing upon you permission for you to go charge money also. And now mm -hmm. it's become a lineage of business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I would like to do, if we could, is, is to go to these kinds of schools that give certification, look up their alumni, and mm -hmm. invite them to join this organization mm -hmm. as an, not, uh, let us say, as an alternative, but not an, an instantaneous either this or that, but come join our organization so that you can wean yourself off of having to charge money for it. But how, how would you see that? In a, because this is something that I'm indeed struggling with myself. I think I mentioned it in our first talk, uh, organizing my life here in the West with, you know, the house to pay off and, and children in the near future. And I mean, everything costs money. So this has been a topic of great interest for me. Like, I also don't want to be charging for the Dhamma. It feels very weird to commercialize it. But at the mm -hmm. same time, I do need to support myself. So I've been looking at ways of doing this. and. Um, from what I've heard from other teachers uh, in the West or friends uh, who, are, who are practicing also is that here in the West we have we don't have the, the willingness to, to donate as much as they have in the East like in the East this this kind of monastic uh -huh. structure in society is kind of self-evident you know you go to the monastery you donate some food or you donate some money to the monastery and it's part of culture whereas here in the West it's not so much so so that so probably donations are not enough to support uh, a Western lifestyle. That's that's yeah. my feeling. Uh, the worst case of what you're saying is that the choices are either pay for play or uh, Donna and donation means it's free. Those are mm -hmm. tends to be the two alternatives that we have in the West. Mm -hmm. That if it's for donation, that yeah. means that I, it's free. Yeah. They can pass up the, uh, the offering plate right in front of me and I don't have to put anything in it. Yeah. Uh, and the other side of the coin is pay for play. Yeah. 
All right, but there's another model, and that third model is the model of generosity as a skill to be developed. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in a way, I tend to rob my students of that in the beginning, only to point them into a pay pay it forward system, mm -hmm. in the sense of um, giving them some uh, editing assignment for something that some other student is writing and things like this, mm -hmm. so uh, that we begin to cooperate. So this is what we're doing now to build this new organization. And so a little sweat equity is all that we're kind of looking for here, but that ultimately there are a number of, I'll be rude and call them high roller donors in mm -hmm. Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, generally in the United States, most of them are going to be Asian. Okay. But there are going to be people who are fairly wealthy. But you see, uh, what happens with them is they're the ones who pay for very expensive retreats. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the retreat, they think they've got their money's worth. It was a business deal after all. And that's the end of their donation. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But uh, inside of our organization, it's uh, we're actually... Um, there is a donor class of people that already in, are in existence. We know this because okay. we already know that there is a scholarship fund that has more money in it than they have students applying for scholarships. Okay. Plus, there is other fairly high don uh, rollers that are willing to put in seed money because what we're looking for is to begin to support Dhamma teachers uh, so that they can, in fact, feel free that they can spend more and more time during their day or their lives uh, in spreading the Dhamma, and that the organization will help taking care of them. That can be done. Um, there's another part of it that, uh, that's worthy of talking about. I think I even mentioned it already, and that is um, a peer review system mm -hmm. so that we listen to what each other talk about which make which is designed to to foster friendship and mm -hmm. communication and cooperation so that then two teachers for instance can share the duties of a particular project that would be too much for one to do mm -hmm. uh, an example of that would be um putting together the amount of money that it would take to rent out a um, a facility that uh, like a retreat center, mm -hmm. uh, and that the organization could help them with the rent for mm -hmm. the ten days, and then they would run the retreat together, mm -hmm. or that one has more experience in doing retreats than someone else. And I'm not saying that we're going to stop doing retreats. Yeah. In fact, I recommend generally a retreat for every student. Yeah. Just come out of it happy, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come yeah, out of say, it enthusiastic. I must say that the retreats that you're describing, because I have not been on a Guenka retreat, because this type of, of retreat indeed never really appealed to me. This kind of okay, I'm gonna sit there for ten days, and and but the retreats in the Plum Village tradition um, are quite different from that. Are a bit more um, geared towards developing what we call mindfulness. Then we do use the word quite a lot. 
developing mindfulness skills in everyday life. So, so we practice eating in mindfulness, uh, walking in mindfulness, talking in mindfulness. So it's it's a very different vibe. And we also have um, weekend retreats, uh, so days of mindfulness in the weekend. So it's a bit different from from the traditional retreat setting. Uh, so I think that would work quite well with what with what you're proposing here with with your organization. So I'm very happy to hear how well that that meshes because this is something I was a bit worried about. Like if I'm if I'm now going to start listening to Damarato, do I then need to give up Plum Village or Pignatan? Uh, which yeah doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be quite um, similar. <laughs> So yeah, very happy about that. But maybe to come back to the last point, um, I do understand this this pooling of resources, but it sounds to me that that what you're talking about is um, more on a, on a on a level of okay, we need to organize a retreat, we need money for this, so we get some money from the organization, and we put in you know the sweat work to do it. Um, so that sounds fine, but then you still have the the monthly expenses of of living. Yes. So that means so it's not it's not the point or the intention of the organization to have um, the the teachers be uh, practicing full time or or doing scholarships for the like it, It's not the point. So they they should have some kind of other job to support them. That would still be the case, right? Ideally and ultimately, no. Okay. Ideally and ultimately, if this organization gets off the ground mm -hmm. uh, and operates successfully, it should be able to uh, assist the teachers in gaining donations either through the organization itself or through their own private donor base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and there's some good examples of that. Yeah. A really good quality example of that is is that Dan Ingram has been able to develop his own donor base. Okay. And because of that, he can do many, many things uh, altruistically. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's a good example okay. of, uh, um, of gaining one's own donor base. Um. And that will happen. Let us say that uh, a middle-aged couple uh, who, uh, if they were going to donate 10% of their income, they would be donating uh, 10000 a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they come and they do a retreat that was uh, uh, free of charge, but taught... Um, donations and Donna and they continue to have a friendship with the teachers that did that um, it would not be unreasonable for them to give a $10,000 donation at all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so generally every retreat that's done then is going to get another donor like that mm -hmm. so that okay. after a dozen of retreats or so you one can make up into $100,000 a year in that context yeah. No yeah. guarantees. I mean, <laughs> of course. No, no, but it does sound like, yeah, it sounds like an interesting approach. It sounds quite feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it's a, um, it's a very noble mm -hmm. way of doing it. 
mm-hmm. because really the money doesn't matter much anyway. Mm-hmm. It, uh, so long as we're supporting one another, so a teacher can support another teacher. I do that already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. A lot to think about. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm trying to reorganize my life right now to, to make a bit more time for these kind of things. And I'm very fortunate that I... Um, I, I heard the some... rumbling. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, I'm very fortunate that I, uh, that I can... That I have some skills in IT. Um, so that I think I should be able to make a good living out of that, but I'm still trying to find a way how to do that like, part-time somehow, you know, how to, how to have these two things uh, to keep them alive at the same time. And then the other thing is that I really don't really enjoy doing IT, so that's also difficult. <laughs> so I need mm-hmm. to find a way where, where I can be doing that for a few days in the week and then maybe make enough money to support myself for the remainder of the time to do something that that is quite valuable uh, to me. I so, can see that coming, mm-hmm. um, especially when we get it to um, uh, to the point of it's, as it is actually playing the role of the original idea of the Sangha, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a community of friends, but that a predominant quality of this is is that these are all noble, high-quality, high-class people, mm-hmm. that anybody who was intending to make money or be a charlatan or uh, fiddle with the books or any of that kind of stuff, these guys will weed themselves out mm-hmm. on their own. And that uh, at the top end of it, we could look at it like the American Medical Association, Mm -hmm. uh, that in the turn of the last century, the AMA actually um, did several things, a whole lot of stuff, some of it just civil action and and, uh, getting the message out. But uh, the United States was full of doctors who had no certification other than something that they got off of a printing press. Yeah. And they were snake oil salesmen, and they were, um, uh, uh, you know, right, okay, charlatans, really. And the mm-hmm. AMA is what basically cleaned up the medical profession in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what I would like to see this organization, organization's function do, is to put it back kind of like the way that the, uh, the Sangha of Buddhist monks in Thailand operate, self-policing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you don't have much charlatanism in the Thai Sangha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds great. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So that this is this is what we're looking for, and I'll keep you up posted on 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 what's going on. Uh, that would be great, Devin. Yeah. Daniel. Sorry. No problem. I just just hung up with Devin not long ago talking about the same stuff. Sorry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No problem at all. Hmm. all um, right. I find that a lot of the students are actually far enough along. Now, the beginning students, I don't talk about with this much stuff. But the students who are moving along, almost everyone I know is thinking about, hmm, could I actually live a life 
of a, a laid-back comedian talking <laughs> down all the time. Yeah. Could I get away with such a lifestyle? The answer is yes. Let's build it together mm-hmm. so that we have an entire um, population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wise old men in the West. We need that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To bring us together for friendship rather than uh, holding religious beliefs, mostly yeah. magical, they yeah. keep us divided. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. Yeah. Mm. Sounds great. So please keep me keep me posted. I would love to All be a right. part of well, this. I, I tell you what. Next time we'll actually do some dharma together rather than uh, dharma politics. Yes, that would also be nice. All right. Well, we'll see you later. Talk to you later. Thank you.